Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Gianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I think uh, in that I have already mentioned it in several episodes that I I really want to cover another phenomenal work of sculpture today. I'm talking about Michelangelo's divine Bacchus. This is going to be located in the Bargello Museum in Florence, a must-see collection on any Florence itinerary to be sure, folks. I'd love to provide some uh, fun sources for this and do a bit of reading, but my things are still all packed up. And I'm still in transition, so we're going to cover the history of the object, but really dive deep into visual analysis, which is a lot of fun, especially for a work like this. I do this discussion knowing full well that my previous episode on another Bargello piece, Donatello's David, is for some reason one of my least trafficked episodes, which is wild to me. It's really, it's really one of my favorites. So, um, if you are a new listener, or if at the time you felt impelled to uh, to skip that one. Go listen to it. It's definitely a lot of fun. Both Donatello's David and Michelangelo's Bacchus are what we refer to as a sculpture in the round, which is going to be an important art history term for you guys. That's something that would be contrasted with relief sculpture. Sculpture in the round is exactly what it sounds like, a sculpture which can be viewed from all angles in the round, right? and be more or less completed and engaged from multiple viewpoints. Relief sculpture, if you think back to our talk on the young Michelangelo, would be like his Madonna of the Stairs or his Battle of Lapiths and Centaurs. These works are carved into the face of the marble, or sometimes you know cast in the bronze, right? Um, and they can be discussed as being in low relief or high relief where the Madonna of the Stairs is in low relief because he doesn't really carve very deeply into it. Um, so the, the actual surface of it remains shallow. And the Battle of Lapiths and Centaurs is much deeper, more detailed, and we would refer to that as high relief. But Bacchus, again, is a sculpture in the round. It is not a relief sculpture, and it's larger than life-size, not by too much, and it's made of the fabulous Carrara marble, Michelangelo's favorite, taken from the marble quarries in Carrara. Remember, Michelangelo flees from Florence in the middle of the 1490s to avoid the French invasion of northern Italy. Bacchus was completed slightly after he arrives in Rome. This would be his first time in Rome, right, in 1496. At the ripe old age of 21, about a year before he's commissioned to do his very famous Pietà. We know the sculpture was originally commissioned for Cardinal Raffaele Riario. Riario, okay? Uh, Does that name sound familiar? Because it should. Riario was the same patron whom Michelangelo tried to deceive with his fake sleeping Cupid. Uh, Of course, Riario did not fall for the fake sculpture, and where a deception of that magnitude and of such importance of such an important figure would have been a kind of career suicide for Michelangelo, right? He uh, instead commissioned Michelangelo to do the Bacchus. 
Cardinario knew Michelangelo was a sculptor of unmatched talent. Beyond Riario, the provenance of the work is well known, and we're fortunate for that. In art history, provenance refers to the history of ownership of a piece of art. Okay, so um, in a dramatic turn of events, Riario rejects the completed Bacchus even after um, he's commissioned it and, and, and specifically asked for it. He's um, somehow not satisfied with it, so he rejects it. We know Michelangelo often lamented working with the cardinal, but there's no known reason why he refused the commission, especially since he is known as an avid collector of antiquities. It's believed that the evident themes that the work presented were too provocative for an agent of the Pope. Um, we'll get into those themes. Or maybe it just didn't quite fit his idea of classical sculpture, because it's different because Michelangelo puts his own little twist on it. In any case, the work was purchased by a wealthy banker by the name of Jacopo Galli, and it found a home in Galli's sculpture garden. Okay, bookmark that, Jacopo Galli's sculpture garden. It stayed there until the 1570s when it was purchased by the Medici. Under Medici ownership, it was transferred to the Uffizi in Florence in the 17th century, and finally relocated to where it's found today, the Bargello Museum, in 1871. There's a remarkable image of the Bacchus as it was in the Gali Sculpture Garden, um, and it was drawn between 1532 and 1535 by an artist visiting the Casa Gali by the name of Martin van Heemskerk. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. I don't know a whole lot about northern northern painters or drawers or, or but Heemskirk when I when I post that image on the on the Instagram I'll I'll include the spelling of that name so you can maybe try to pronounce it better than me but it is this drawing is equally as rare as it is exciting to have right because in it we see the Bacchus depicted very clearly uh, but the hand has been broken off and his uh his penis was chiseled away. What's up with that? The easy answer is that someone, either Riario for the initial commission, or Gali for the relocation to his garden, or Michelangelo himself, wanted to make the sculpture appear as a legitimate antique, much like we saw with the Sleeping Cupid. We already know that Michelangelo knew how to do that. You'll note that if you look at classical sculptures of males, as in like Roman or Greek sculptures in marble, the penis usually is broken off due to time and neglect. So our arms are actually really anything that sticks out. So keep that in mind. So the, the hand is uh, eventually reattached, and if you look at the goblet it holds, you would know why. Okay, But before we continue into the, the the visual analysis of the sculpture let's talk about who Bacchus is uh, who Michelangelo is showing us here so we can sort out his choices and how he's presenting him to us so Bacchus is the Roman god of wine and fertility among other things pay attention to this guys we can always liken Bacchus or other Roman gods to Greek deities so Bacchus to Dionysus 
But always remember that it's an error to say that Greek gods and their Roman equivalents are exactly the same. As we will see, they very often share symbols, iconography, and means to identify them. But I think it's best to avoid drawing absolute equals. Gods with different names and different social and cultural contexts, I believe they're different entities altogether. Forgive my annoying level of nuance here. Um, we can and will liken Bacchus to Dionysus. I'm not saying we won't, um, but we want to uh, not say they are the same. So, wine, fertility, even agriculture and the harvest, okay? These are things associated with Bacchus who becomes more of a symbol of self-release through intoxication. Bacchus can be Bacchus, god of moving out of your dumpy apartment, Bacchus. Bacchus can be associated with happiness, freedom, liberation, and self-indulgence. This comes with some give and take. Too much wine, and one is absolutely wasted, right? Useless and sloppy. But wine, used appropriately, can relieve one of the stresses and anxieties of sober expression. It can elevate thoughts, can make one more sociable, and encourage a type of thinking and creativity that would otherwise be limited. If we think back to Michelangelo's upbringing in the Palazzo Medici with the Neoplatonic scholars and artists, we know he was educated among the most elite. Also keep in mind that this is the Renaissance, at the height of the revival of classical antiquity, especially among the upper class. There was a practice taken from the ancient Romans called otium, O-T-I-U-M, which is a term with no succinct translation, but it's often referred to as a period of leisure or idleness. In Florence, otium was reintroduced by Petrarch in the 14th century. Remember Petrarch? One of the Tre Corone who helped pioneer classical Latin as a literary language, helped revive the culture of classical antiquity as a proto-Renaissance figure, yes, that Petrarch. But for him, this was a type of leisure that should be paired with serious contemplation, philosophy, research, and conversation. Otium in practice in Renaissance Florence under the Medici would involve periods of relaxation and probably wine drinking. Here we are, where Otium plus wine, Bacchus, renew a type of Renaissance humanistic philosophy, right? That philosophy is what we continue to study today. This is just me doing some spitballing here, but for Michelangelo, Bacchus could be an expression of this leisure, the type of Petrarchan leisure that bleeds into Neoplatonic Renaissance philosophy circles, right? What do you think about that? If we are to understand the gift of Bacchus, wine, used correctly, how it can release one of the, the social sort of constraints that they have before they enjoy a couple glasses of wine, or goblets in this case, right? Um, if we understand this as a symbol of a type of relaxed creativity, can't we read Bacchus in light of otium practices in the period in which 
Michelangelo made the sculpture? I do think so. So let's have a look at this beauty, shall we? Try to get an image in front of you or have a look at it and burn it into your brain as you listen because it is truly remarkable. I, I don't think we are necessarily seeing a figure who is enjoying otium as it's meant. I just wanted to liken the practice of otium to Bacchus. So let's look at him top to bottom. His hair is made of grapes, an obvious symbol of wine, even though there's like regular hair at the back, right at the front. These grapes are framing his face. He wears an ivy crown, which was traditionally associated as a symbol for the cult of Dionysus, right? So there are parallels, of course, between Dionysus and Bacchus. But look at his face. It's not just the sightless eyes glazed over, trying so hard to focus on that goblet, wanting it and still seeing right past it. It's that open mouth, anything but regal, the sloppy expression, this puffy face. He even has a mole on his cheek. This is one of many intentional imperfections. Let's scan downward. Check out his body and the genius of its creation. This is certainly not the idealized Greek forms that the Renaissance likes to boast. Don't get me wrong and look closely. It's there underneath a bit of it. Let's say uh, Pudge. He's flabby from his excessive wine drinking. But that sculpted godlike physique is still there underneath it. Look at the handsome shoulders and those abs trying to come out, but aren't they struggling? He's got the, the V-cut, but it doesn't really entice you, but rather it calls you to question what exactly is in that tummy, right? Almost kind of uh, prego, you know, not the sauce, you know what I mean? It, 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 his genitals look mutilated, right? So he's he's got these mutilated genitals, his pregnant-like body, and does this not recall his role as a fertility deity, right? He's both soft and muscular. There's something very androgynous about the work, even, can we say, hermaphroditic, hermaphroditic, right? Does it evoke a blurred line of sex and gender? I absolutely think so. Keep in mind, this is not exclusively a 21st century concept. We can even see it in those soft, round features of the face. Head to toe, he is in the wildest contraposto I've ever seen. It is simultaneously classical and entirely new. Remember what contraposto is, right? Uh, counterpoise. One knee locked back, one knee loose, stepping forward or stepping back or preparing to relax. This figures, these figures are always slightly in some sort of motion, but Bacchus is wild. His center of gravity is way up high because he's not just doing your traditional step forward, step back. He is stumbling, don't you think? His upper torso sways back and his feet are far from firm, or far from about to be firm. That goblet off kilter in his hand, as this is about to spill out over the side a little bit, right? Meanwhile, his other arm, just on the cusp of gripping that lion skin, one of his 
trademark satyrs merrily snacking on some of his grapes at his side, showing Bacchus as one who provides merriment for others. But look at the excellent musculature and how Michelangelo depicts that hand, just seizing, about to grip. It's incredible. And the satyr, of course, and the lion skin that it's on, the hide of a wild beast, is a warning. Just as the satyr is part goat, part man or child too, so is the intoxicated likened to wildness. Excessive use of Bacchus' gift renders man as animalistic, feral, wild, and unruly, which is ultimately to their peril, or possibly even to their death. As a sculpture in the round, Michelangelo once disengaged from all sides. The way this work is set up in the Bargello, you can engage it from all sides. It's actually kind of interesting. You can even see it through the window on the street if you don't uh, want to go inside, but you really should go inside. But I always encourage walking around it completely and slowly. It is, an incre- it is incredible how the figure seems even more unbalanced as you circle him, as if he's either going to finish his drunken step forward or catch himself stepping backwards, clutching the tree stump by the satyr. Right? It really is one of the most um, engaging and, frankly, for me, relatable pieces in the museum. If you don't know what I mean by that, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> what, what we have here is a very unique kind of excellence where a very classical form and idea is reshaped by a renaissance artist who brings with him uh brings to him a subject and composition an entirely contemporary approach one that is novel and eternally compelling that's why we're still talking about it right now yes this is a god but a god that is relatable that resonates with a culture that is refining itself, aware of its bounties and aware of its pitfalls. Why didn't Cardinal Riario accept this work? All we can do is speculate. Was it too pagan, too erotic, too androgynous? Even Vasari notes that the anatomy of the figure does not fall as precisely clear or definable. Michelangelo does not give us a god of the grapevine that fits the idealized mold but reflects humanity and its corruptibility so precisely that a keen eye like Riario's would no doubt find it provocative in the least, or better, offensive. We also see that Michelangelo is not struggling with anatomy at all here, or composition, or even with facial expression. All of the figures and perfections are so precise and deliberate that here with this work, in my most humble opinion, we have everything that makes Michelangelo the divine artist that we know him as today. It's here, folks. You see it. Truly amazing. To summarize this episode and everything that we've said thus far, the Bacchus is the first major full-scale commission of Michelangelo's career. It is fully engageable sculpture in the round that expertly demonstrates the swaying, 
drunkenness of the Roman god Bacchus. Michelangelo is sure to include very sharp implications of his education in Florence, using Bacchus not as a reflection of the divine, but of humanity. Here, the pagan idolatry is transferred into a type of humanism that shows wine consumption, possibly through the revived Latin practice of otium, as both virtuous and dangerous. It is a lesson of limitations and a warning against the excess. This duality is doubled in Bacchus's androgyny, as his anatomy does not fit any traditional standard at the time. I want to reiterate that a lot of this is my own analysis, based on a lot of reading, based on teaching in front of this work, the honor of my life, and based on my own experiences engaging the work. I also paraphrase well-established scholarship that is not mine, but the result of years of tireless efforts and research. I hate, and I do sincerely hate, that we live in a world where this process is being shamefully and unfoundedly called into question. I think combining solid research and interpretation, you can see that art history can truly be a liquid and fluid practice. But there are also ways to do it poorly, okay? Keep that in mind. So um, look closely, read as much as you can, and don't forget to feel, okay? Instincts go a long way, but only as far as you're reading. Or, thankfully, you're listening. I hope you guys enjoy this episode on Bacchus. I would really, really appreciate if you would give the podcast a rating or review, if you would find our Facebook page and like it, and if you would join us on Instagram and follow. I will be providing all of the images discussed here today, um, including the Hemdershek, whatever his name is, um, along with, with some images of the Bargello and the different details of this most phenomenal work. Thanks again. Until next time. Arrivederci.